Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, brethren. It, it kind of feels like a mini feast today. <laughs> so many brethren, the singing, the, the preaching. Uh, very, very enjoyable. Thank you to everybody who has made this day what it is. And I want to just read a card to you, a thank you card to the Burlington Congregation. It says, to the Burlington Church, we want to express our sincere thanks for your countless hours of work and dedication to prepare the feast and make it wonderful, full of variety for all of God's children with sincere appreciation And that's from Sister Benita and Sister Kathy. So thank you to both of you, and thank you, Burlington Congregation. That is just one of several messages, and I think maybe all of you would have uh, had somebody express appreciation to you for the feast. This was posted on one of the United Brethren, uh, their Facebook page. It says this, We attended the Church of God International CGI feast site in Leamington, Ontario, Canada, which is located on the north shore of Lake Erie, about 40 minutes east of Detroit. There were about 10 United Church of God brethren among the 150 or so attending this site, and we couldn't have been more warmly received by CGI. They are a model for promoting unity among all the Church of God brethren. So this is now how the brethren in United see CGI. They see us as a model for promoting unity. Another message, this was an email from a United brother, and this was to myself and Pastor Palmatier. It says, Happy Sabbath to you. We just completed listening to the afternoon service of the last great day because we wanted to receive the benefit of the whole feast. So they had to leave early, and they went and they listened to that message. We feel spiritually richer for being there and listening to the messages. We also want to express gratitude for welcoming us and extending equal love as to the CGI brethren. And we also appreciated your frequent remarks acknowledging our presence. My wife and I hope and pray that this will go forward towards brotherly unity. We would be disappointed if this would stay as it is, or God forbid, go backwards. We must go forward if we are expecting to be in God's kingdom. So brethren, these are powerful words. This is a very powerful experience that our united brethren had coming to share the feast with us. And, and brethren, you were the host. I think I would say it was a historic feast in the sense that we had so many United Brethren with us and they had such a positive experience to go back to their congregation and say that was the best feast we've ever had. And that's what they shared with us. That it was the best feast they ever had. This is going to promote unity. You know, how could it be the best feast they ever had if God's spirit was not here? So there needs to be an acknowledgement of God's spirit working to make the feast what it was. I think it's also historic. I may be wrong, but I think it's the first time that a congregation hosted the feast rather than a festival coordinator. And it's the first time that such a young congregation hosted the feast. And I'd like to just remind you, brethren, of our vision when we started CGI Burlington. We said we want a dynamic actively serving congregational family that worships God in spirit and in truth and keeps the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I I think, brethren, we saw this in action at the feast. 
we were all actively serving as a family. We were worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And we endeavored to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that, it just happened naturally because that's what we had been working on from the foundation of the congregation. In fact, when I came in today, and we got here fairly early, the youth were already here. And they were busy. They were setting things up. One's here, one's over there. They're just busy setting it up. It's just a beautiful thing to see where everyone is engaged, our young people are engaged, and and it's their church, and they have a sense of responsibility for the church. I want to remind you, brethren, of three of the seven goals that we set when we established the congregation. One of them was to provide a place where every believer feels safe and valued. That if you're a believer and you come here, you don't have to watch behind you. You don't have to worry about somebody gossiping about you, somebody assassinating your character. It just won't happen here. You're safe. And I think that spirit was in the feast as well. There was a sense of safety that everyone had and value. People were valued. And you see the UCG brethren writings, how, how, how valued they felt. We had another goal, to have close ties with the rest of God's church. That includes other CGI congregations, but outside of CGI. God's church is God's church, and we want to have unity. And then the final goal we had of the seven, this is the third of the seven, to become a model Christian community. That as we build this congregation, we want it to be a model. That other congregations could look at, or brethren come here, and and take something away. And go back to their congregation and say, you know, I saw it done like this in Burlington. Or the Burlington brethren behave like this. And what we're saying in this is not to be arrogant, to think we're better than anybody else, but to embrace leadership. That's what leadership is, to be a model, to be a role model. And to understand that leadership is not an individual. An individual can't be a leader by themselves. It's a community. And so we had this understanding that we have to function as a community and as a community provide leadership. And and I think in, in a short space of time, the execution of the Feast of Tabernacles as a congregation demonstrates that we're getting there. We're getting there. But what I want to communicate, brethren, is that the standard that we aspire to is so high. There is no place for complacency. There's no place for arrogance. As, as wonderful, all the feedback that we're getting from the feast is wonderful, but we need to look at ourselves and say, we, we have to do better. We have to do better. And as we do better, we inspire others to do better. And, and uh, Pastor George is here. Uh, CGI Canada, as a ministry, is formulating a vision for Canada. So we're going to have to come back now and look at our roadmap and revise it Because the vision shouldn't be coming from a congregation. The vision should be coming from the leadership. And then the congregation figures out how do we support that vision. So we will be coming back and revising this. What I want to do in the sermon today, brethren, is again, remind us of how high the standard is. So so first of all, thank you and congratulations. Um, The feast was impactful. It was life-changing. And we hosted it together. And I think that that speaks to our vision. 
But the standard is high. The standard is very high. And I want to revisit the last words in the Old Testament. And I know I covered this on the last great day. Pardon me if we go back over it. I think that these words are so powerful. When God spoke them, he then paused. And there was silence. It's like when a speaker, you know sometimes, Pastor George, you make a point and you pause. And in the pause, you're emphasizing the point that you made. So God says something, and the last words he says, there's silence for 400 years. 400 years of silence. Uh, I think there's emphasis on those words. I just want to go back over those words and understand what it means to us as a community and, and particularly what the New Testament says to us in terms of how we can fulfill those words. But let's, to start, let's go back to the scripture that Landon was reading earlier, Deuteronomy 30. As we pick up the big story, what's the grand narrative? We know that God created man. Pastor Ramakan spoke about that in the Bible study. Created man in his own image. And then we know how evil and corrupt man became to the point where God repented of making man. And he flooded the earth and destroyed all life except for eight, eight souls, Noah's family. And he started over. And again, there was corruption. But God promised he wouldn't flood the earth again. But in that corruption, there was one man who was faithful, Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham and said, you know what? Through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. So I am going to start over, but it's going to be through you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. And that covenant that he made cascaded down to, uh, to, to Israel. And God then, through the Mosaic covenant, began to bless Israel as a nation. And that the whole earth would be blessed through this nation. This is the grand narrative. Now, as they were to go into the promised land, we see this in Deuteronomy 30. And I just want to, uh, Landon's already read this, so I just want to go over a couple of uh, verses. In Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 15. But I want to focus on verse 17. This is the issue. As you're going into the promised land, this is the issue. And, and Deacon Jan gave a sermon where he talked about it's a heart thing. He spoke about it's a heart thing. And that's part of the grand narrative. It's a heart thing. And so here in Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, it says, If your heart turn away, so that you will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish. These are the, promised, these are the, the covenant people. And that you shall not prolong your days upon the land. So it's, it's a covenant. These are covenant people. And land is involved. And if they turn their heart away from God, they will, be, they will perish and they'll be ejected from the land. This is, what the, this is what the scripture says. Then in verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Why? That both you and your seed shall live. So, so there's a, a parental relationship here. I, I want you to live, 
and I want your children to live. So that's the blessing. If you choose life, you, the covenant people, and your children will live in the land. Which I swore unto your fathers. So we're seeing this family relationship. There's a covenant community, and God is concerned about their children, and he's concerned about the promise that he made to their fathers. So we're seeing here this this familial relationship. So they go into the promised land, and continuing the narrative, kind of the short form, there were many judges, there were many kings, there were many prophets, and Israel just kept failing. They kept breaking the covenant. It just it was one failure after another. Finally, God has mercy on Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom got wiped out. And through Persia, allows them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. Wonderful. We can start all over. Wipe the slate clean, start over. And we know through Haggai, Ezra, Nehemiah, again they failed. Again they were unfaithful. And then we come to the last book of the Old Testament. So that's the narrative. There's covenant community. God is concerned about them and their children and fulfilling the promise that was made to their fathers. And here we come now to Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Let's turn there. And we we, we have to just keep digging here. There's something here that God wants us to understand and, and we're, gonna, we're just scratching the surface, but we're starting to get it. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming great and dreadful day of the Lord. So, so God's patience has come to an end. As we, as we read through the narrative, there's so much mercy. We talk about the mercy that never fails. We're just saying that. And now as we come to Malachi 4, God's patience is at an end. However, even though his patience is at an end, he still promises more mercy. And the mercy comes in the form of Elijah. That before this dreadful day that's going to burn like an oven, and he's going to, everything's going to be burned up, you're going to walk, and you're going to say there's ashes there, and you're going to remember that used to be people. Those used to be people. They were wicked people, and now they're ashes. These were covenant people, and now they're ashes. So God's patience has come to an end. But before his patience comes to an end, he sends mercy. And that mercy comes in the form of Elijah the prophet. And what shall he do? Notice that when we were in Deuteronomy, the issue was a heart issue. The issue in Deuteronomy was, if your heart turns away, then I'll denounce you, and you'll be ejected from the land. And now the mercy is, that Elijah is going to come and he's going to turn your heart back. So your heart did turn away. And now Elijah is coming in mercy to turn your heart back. So it says here, and he shall turn the heart. It's a heart issue. So it begins with the heart and the Old Testament ends with the heart. And he's going to come and he's going to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. It's interesting here that fathers is plural. Children is plural, but heart is singular. There's one heart. And that heart has to be turned to the children and the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth, we could say with 
utter destruction. So, so I have no, there's no value in the earth to me if this doesn't happen. So if this doesn't happen, the whole earth will be burned up and there's no value. So, so, so this has to happen. Now, look at Malachi 3. And verse 2. Well, let's start at verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger. Again, this is the mercy of God. And he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who may abide? And again, we were talking about the divinity of Christ. Clearly, Whoever this is that's coming to the temple is divine. Because the question is, who can abide the day of his coming? So when he comes, who will stand? But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. So we would really have to go on a field trip and see what a refiner does. How they take a precious metal and the intense furnace that they put it in. And if there's any impurity in that metal, in that gold, it's burned off completely. It is hot. And then it comes out and you have what's left is pure. That's what this is like. So if there's any of us who are corrupt, who are hypocrites, who are pretending, we can't stand when Christ returns. He's like a refiner's fire. And then, if that wasn't enough, he goes on to say, and he's like fuller's soap. So we'd have to, again, go on a field trip. and say, what is a fuller? And it's somebody who you would take your wool to that, that's got stains in it that you can't get the stains out. You take it to a fuller, he'll get the stains out. That's something that they have a process of beating the wool and, and cleaning it in such a way that when he gives it back to you, it's white. Whatever stains were in there, they're gone. And so this is what's happening. And before this happens, God extends his mercy by sending his messenger first. And the messenger prepares the way. So we see here, very clearly, God's patience with the covenant community is at an end. But there's one last chance. And that is Elijah coming to prepare the way before the refiner comes, before the fuller comes. But there's also in this book, not just the theme of the patience coming to an end, but also this theme of hope. Very clearly, the book does end with hope. And I think the, the Jews didn't understand this because they refuse to finish the book. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't end with verse 6 of Malachi 4. They, they take verse 4 and they put that at the end because they can't stand that it ends with such uh, a dramatic a confrontation with the covenant community. But there is hope. And look at Malachi 3 and verse 10. It asks the question, who can stand in front of the refiner? And it says here to the covenant community, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. And I used to read this for years as spiritual meat. So to bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there can be spiritual meat in my house. Now that I've studied the offerings, I realize that this means what it says. 
bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there could be meat in my house. Because the Levites depend on that food. That's what they eat. In other words, be faithful in your tithes so that the Levites can eat. And that's part of the answer to the question, who can stand in front of the refiner? Well, part of the answer is, get this relationship with the Levites right, and then the covenant community can stand. Because if you do this, prove him with this, and see if he will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour on you a blessing that there won't be enough room to receive it. And he'll rebuke the devourer for their sake. So they were having trouble with their crops. He'll protect the crop, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, says the Lord, so that, verse 12, all nations can see that you're blessed by God. So it's not about you per se. It's about all nations. But I have to set you up as the model community. I have to set you up as the leadership community so that all nations can understand what is the relationship that I want with man. I have to have that with somebody first. And you need to be the model. So get the relationship with the Levites right. Let the Levites teach you so that you can become that model community. And then the whole world will understand what my blessing is. And they will then follow your practices. The original Elijah, we know that what he did was turn the hearts. The original Elijah turned the hearts of Israel. They turned away from God. They were serving Baal and all these other gods. And Elijah came along and said, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. And he challenged them and challenged the 850 false prophets and demonstrated to them that, in fact, Yahweh is God. And he turned the people back to God. So we're looking for this Elijah to to prepare the way and turn the people back. Now, look at... Malachi 1 and verse 6. In this dispute that God is having with his people, he poses this question to them. As if to say, everybody knows this. Everyone knows this. A son honors his father. And a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? So there's something that we have to understand in the relationship between a father and a son. We have to understand that in order to understand the relationship that God wants with us. If we don't understand the father-son relationship, we can't understand what God is, God's objective with us. And so he's assuming you understand that a, a son honors his father. Well, if you understand that, Why are you not treating me with the honor due to me if I'm a father? This is directed to the priests that despise his name. So the priests are not teaching the people the proper covenant community relationships. And and we covered that at the feast, how they have uh, corrupted the covenant. Now, look at Malachi 3. Go back to Malachi 3. 
and verse 6. This is a book all about the covenant. And it's a book about how faithful God is to the covenant. Malachi 3 and verse 6. And again, this is in the context of who shall stand before the refiner? Think of the hottest furnace you've ever seen. And then ask your question, if somebody goes into that furnace, who will stand? Who who can possibly, if I take the covenant community and put them in this furnace, will anybody stand? This is the question. And in the context of this question, we come to verse 6 that says, I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, you corrupt covenant community. You faithless community. You people who have turned away from me. Because I don't change, that's why you're not destroyed. It's not that God doesn't change. People use this... um, scripture to say it's impossible for God to change. That's not what this scripture is saying. This scripture is saying it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to break his covenant. So because he's made a covenant with Israel, with Abraham, because of that covenant that he's made, that's why the sons of Jacob are not consumed. And I think that's interesting language that he chooses to talk about sons. So again, we're seeing here this context of father, son, father, son, father, son. Because God keeps covenant, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. And and just up to verse 3, you'll see here that he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. So he's going to sit down and get to work as a refiner, burning off the impurities. And he shall purify, notice this, the sons of Levi. So we're constantly seeing this theme in the book of father, son, father, son, father, son. So the sons of Jacob are not consumed. The sons of Levi will be purified so that they can bring an offering to God. Now, go back with me to Malachi 2. Malachi 2 and verse 10. Don't we all have one father? This is the question. Aren't we basically a family? Don't don't we all trace our roots to one man, Israel? Aren't we the sons of Jacob? Well, if we all have one father, if we're all a family, and God has created us, why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers. So again, this very strong theme of father-son, father-son, father-son. But somehow this community has lost the plot. And we're being treacherous to each other within the community. Now, verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, no exceptions, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto the Lord of hosts. So it doesn't matter if we're religious. It doesn't matter if we come and we bring an offering to God. If we're treacherous, we're going to be cut off. Now, 
verse 13. Well, let's drop down to verse 14. So he doesn't, God doesn't accept their offering. And they're saying, why, in verse 14? Why don't you accept our offering? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. So again, in this uh, context, brethren, before we go to the New Testament, we need to establish the context. It's all about family. It's all about family. And the covenant community is one big family. We all have one father. But within that context, there are families with marriages, and those marriages are breaking down. We're being treacherous to our wives. We're breaking covenant, and then we're being treacherous to each other. So the whole community, that the, the sacred community, has become a treacherous community. And it says here, the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, the, the woman that you married as a young person decades ago, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and the wife of your covenant. She's the wife of your covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit. And why one? That he might seek a godly seed. So again, we're seeing this theme, brethren. What God is after is a godly seed. So the covenant community needs to produce godly seed. That seed, at the heart of that seed, should be turned to the fathers. And the father's heart should be turned to that seed. But if we're going to be treacherous with the wife of our youth and divorce her and go and marry a foreign woman that has no concept of the God of Israel and have seed with that foreign woman and the children grow up and they don't even speak the language of the Jews, they have no clue who the God of Israel is, they, they have no idea how to spell covenant, and this is the seed we're producing, the children's heart in the covenant community is not going to be turned toward us because we've turned our heart away from them and we're destroying the community. So the, the, the scripture then ends Malachi 4. Let's go back there. Malachi 4. The scripture, the, the Old Testament ends saying in all of this treachery in all of this covenant breaking, I'm looking for a faithful few. And I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before I come to destroy. And, and what he's going to do is he's going to make sure that there's this faithful few. Because my intention is to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. My intention is to bless the whole world. But I need a community to begin. And so we're going to start with a faithful few. That's how the Old Testament ends. So the sequence of events, brethren, Malachi 3, 1 shows us, a messenger prepares the way, then the Lord comes suddenly to his temple to destroy. But there's going to be a faithful few just in time because Elijah comes on the scene to turn the hearts. Okay. Let's now go to the New Testament. Okay, so that's how the Old Testament ends. 400 years of silence. And now we come to the New Testament. Turn with me, brethren, to Luke chapter 1. So 
So, so the final act before the condemnation of God is the turning of the hearts back. The turning of the hearts back. Luke 1 and verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So 400 years of... So as you, as you uh, turn to pages from Malachi to Luke, what you did was you passed through 400 years. So 400 years later, we come to Luke 1. And what we find is there's always a faithful remnant. There's always a faithful remnant. And so here we see this faithful remnant, part of it in Zechariah, and Elizabeth, who were righteous. Verse 16. And many of the children of Israel, speaking of John the Baptist, he shall turn to the Lord their God. So it's all about turning the hearts. And so this John the Baptist, this baby, his mission is to turn the children of Israel, to turn their hearts. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he's going to come before the Lord, because we said that the Lord is going to come suddenly to his temple. But before he does that, Elijah is going to come. And he's going to turn the hearts so that when the Lord comes, there's a community with their hearts turned. So he's going to come in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Notice this, brethren, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And that's what I want us to focus on in the New Testament. God is not interested, and pardon me for saying this, I know I'm going to offend people, but I'm going to say it. God is not interested, God is not interested in your salvation as an individual. It really has limited value, maybe none. God is interested in our salvation as a body, as a community. He, he wants a people prepared for the Lord, not a person. It doesn't say to make ready a person for the Lord. He wants a people. And I think what, what causes congregations to break down is when we think, oh, it's just me and the Lord. I don't care about you. I'll turn my back on you. You should never talk to me like that. I don't need you. It's just me and the Lord. This is what causes congregations to break down. When we realize, I need you. It, it's too bad we got into this conflict. We need to figure out how to resolve it because I need you. And you need me. And we all need each other. Because we're a body. And God is interested in the body. And that body goes beyond Burlington. It's the body of Christ. He's coming for a people. And so part of the mission before he comes is to prepare a people. And this is our mission. This is, this is the carryover from Malachi into the New Testament. This is now a New Testament mandate that we need to be ready as a people for Christ to return. Dropping down to verse 70. Verse 72. He comes here, verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers 
and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So it's all about this covenant that was sworn to Abraham. And this is the mission in the New Testament. Let's go now to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Here, Christ is now speaking to to the Jews, and he says, But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say unto you, and more than a prophet, speaking of John the Baptist. For this is he of whom it is written, and we just read that in Malachi, Christ is saying, this is the one. So in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says that the Lord is going to come suddenly to his temple. Suddenly to his temple. And who shall stand when, when that happens? Because he's like a refiner's fire. But before he comes, the messenger is going to come to prepare the way. Christ is now saying here, this is the one. Verse 10. This is he of whom it is written in Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare the way before you. So again, this is God's mercy, that a people will be prepared before Christ comes. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers, suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So John is really the end of the Old Testament era, and now we're coming into the New Testament era. And if you will receive it, if you will receive it, this is Elijah that was to come. So here I am, I'm Christ, and I'm telling you that Elijah will come before the Lord comes. This is Elijah, and if you'll receive it, then you know who I am. If you'll receive it. The problem here, brethren, is the way the Old Testament scripture is written, what's hidden is the fact that Christ comes and then he returns. And there's what's called this hidden interval of about 2,000 years that we call the church age. So the church age was hidden to the Old Testament Jews. They just understood Elijah comes, he prepares the people, and then suddenly the Lord comes to his temple. What we understand now looking back is, yes, that's true. Elijah comes, prepares a people, and then in God's mercy, the Lord comes to start the church. And now we have the church age, and our mission is to fulfill this prophecy of turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and fathers to the children and preparing a people so that when he comes back suddenly to his temple, there's a community that is prepared to do the work that God has to bless the whole world. So what was hidden in Malachi was this church stage, this interval of about 2,000 years. The Jews didn't see that. But we see it looking back. And so we are under this edict to prepare a people. That, that's, what this, that's what we're doing here. That's why community is so important. We are the spiritual Israelites. We are the covenant community. 
And we need to be prepared as a community. It's God, God is not coming saying, I'm looking for one father and I'm looking for one son. He says, I'm looking for the hearts of the fathers, or we could say the parents, to be turned to the sons, or we could say the children. That there's something now in this community that they're no longer being treacherous to each other, and, and they're so uh, engaged in their marriages and in their families that they create a stable community that blesses the children, and the children are so blessed by it that their hearts are turned to the parents in gratitude. If, if I can get this, and it goes to the Bible study, you know, the, the scripture says when, in Ephesians 5, where he's talking about, as a husband, you make sure you do this. As a wife, you make sure you do this. This is a mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So this family relationship, this marriage covenant, is a mystery. And it has everything to do with this community being prepared for Christ. You know, I I read somewhere that um, the new covenant should be called the last covenant. So you've got the old covenant and the last covenant. And that's nonsense. Because the scripture says it's a mystery. Marriage is a mystery. The covenant between a husband and wife, it's a mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So we're the new covenant community. It's not the last covenant. Because we're going to enter into a covenant when Christ returns. We're going to marry Christ. And that's going to be the covenant, another covenant. God works through covenants. So a husband and wife is a mystery. And the Old Testament ends with this edict around fathers and sons. seems very strange. But we could say the relationship between a father and a son, based on the Bible study, is a mystery. But I speak concerning the father and the covenant community. That the relationship that a father has with his son the same way that a marriage pictures Christ and the church, a father and a son, or we could say parents and their children, pictures what God the Father is after. And we heard it in the Bible study, that Christ is doing a work in us to bring us into glory with him, to have a covenant community relationship with the Father. And so the Old Testament ends saying, I must have this, otherwise the earth has no value to me. This is what I've been after from the beginning. And so this is what we are now fulfilling in this, in this um, interval, this hidden interval between John the Baptist and Christ's second return. And this is the church age where we have to get this right. We have to build community. Matthew 17. Matthew 17 and verse 8, this is after the transfiguration. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man. So Elijah and Moses disappeared. So so you've got Moses who came with the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that the people kept breaking. And then you've got Elijah who turned them back. That's what Elijah did. And that's how the Old Testament ends saying, remember the law of Moses. And I'm going to send Elijah. So here they are, the disciples, knowing this scripture, that we have to remember the law of Moses, and out of mercy, I will send you Elijah to turn your hearts back to that law. 
Here they are, they see this transfiguration, they see this vision, they see Christ, they see Moses, and they see Elijah. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw nobody except Jesus. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to nobody. So they just, they, what they just saw was the fulfillment, or so they thought, of Malachi 4. That, that, that the Son of God is coming, the Lord is coming to his temple, but before he comes, I'm going to send you Elijah so that you can remember the law of Moses. Well, we just saw Moses, we just saw Elijah, and there's Christ. Okay, this is it. We're in the gun lap. This is it now. Now everything's going to happen. And then Christ says, don't tell anybody. Well, well, this is the mercy of God. That when Elijah comes, this is our last chance to get it right. And now Christ is saying, don't tell anybody. Until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. So this is really confusing. If we have to wait now until you come from the dead, what about our brethren? How do we tell them that Elijah has come and we need to get our act together? And you're saying, no, just wait until I come back. So then they say, verse 11, Oh, sorry, verse 10. So they're saying to him, the disciples asked him, saying, well, if we can't tell anybody that we just saw Elijah and Moses with you, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? We're, we're confused. We, we thought you'd want us to tell everybody that this is it now. We're in the gun lap. We've got to get it right. And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. So we could say it this way. The prophecy is correct that says Elijah will come first. And it's funny, it says here, restore all things. That's not what the Greek says. There's no things. The Greek just says, restore all. And this word restore means to turn. So he's going to come and he's going to turn all. And it's the, if you look at Malachi 4, 5, and 6, where it says he shall turn the hearts, if you read it in the Septuagint, in the Greek, it's the exact same word. So, so he's saying, yes, it's true. Elijah's going to come and turn the hearts of the fathers and the children, and the children and the fathers. And then here he says, it's true, Elijah's going to come and turn all. Which means to restore. So he shall restore or turn all. But I'm telling you, so that's what the prophecy says, and it's correct. And I'm telling you now, that Elijah has come already, and they didn't know. So, so this, trans, this vision that you saw, that's not the Elijah. Elijah has already come, and they didn't know him. But they did to him whatever they wanted, so they cut off his head, because he was turning them back. He was telling them what the, what the law says. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer from them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So, so the, the, the prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, has been fulfilled. God promised to send Elijah, and his mission, we saw from the beginning and from Deuteronomy, if you turn your heart away from God, you will be ejected from the land. 
God has no use for you. And the people just kept turning their hearts away from God. So the mercy now is that God will send Elijah, and his mission is to turn our hearts back. And turning our hearts back to God includes and is manifested by our hearts being turned to our children and our children's hearts being turned to us. It's a family. It's a mystery. But I speak concerning God and his children. And I speak concerning Christ and the church. We've got to get the family right. That's what, there are lessons we learn. There are ways that the next generation gets shaped when we get the family relationship right. And so we're now in this hidden interval, and it's all about getting the family relationship right. Quickly look at 1 Kings 18. First Kings 18, this is the original Elijah, and drop down to verse 37, where he's having this conflict with the covenant community. And he says, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God. So he's now turning the covenant community back to God, and he's asking for God's help to show them that he is in fact the Lord God, and that you, notice this, have turned their heart back again. That was the mission of Elijah, to take this faithless community, these covenant breakers, and to turn their heart back to God. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water. He had poured water all over the sacrifice that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. Their hearts turned. And they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. So that's what Elijah did for the covenant community. He came, he challenged them, he confronted them, and he turned their hearts back to the Lord, where they acknowledged who the true God was. So now John the Baptist comes along, and he does the exact same thing. Goes into the covenant community and turns their hearts back to God. And that involves the family relationship and being true to the covenant of family. So we're in this hidden interval. We're in the church age. And it's again, it's an extension of God's mercy. This time, God has locked out physical Israel. His patience has come to an end. And he's bringing in the Gentiles. And now we're dealing with spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel. But it's the same covenant. Same covenant with Abraham that he's now fulfilling in this new covenant, which is still with Israel, but the Gentiles are being grafted into it. And it all has to do now in this 2,000-year period, which we're coming, we're at the end of it now, it all has to do with fulfilling this, this family relationship and, and, and our hearts being turned into the family, understanding the family covenant, how that extends into the, the, the community. Don't we all have one father? Isn't it that when we come into Christ, Abraham is our father? So then we're a family. So, so if we learn faithfulness in our nuclear family, that same faithfulness needs to be extended to the community. And when we get that, then we treat our children not as our specific children, 
but as children of the community, that he seeks a godly seed. So all of us collectively have the responsibility to see that God gets a godly seed. So as a community, we can't have children growing up and becoming atheists. We can't have children coming up and worshipping Baal. We need a godly seed. And we need to figure out how we together focus on the children. Understanding how special you are. And that God, God seeks a relationship with you. And to do it in such a way that they don't feel oppressed. They don't feel resentful toward us. In, instead, they feel joy. They feel affection to us. Their hearts are turned to us. This is not my responsibility. You know, Ryan and Rachel are my children. I, I don't bear this responsibility by myself. I'm in the covenant community. And I need your help. Because it's the heart of the parents, collectively, that are turned toward the children, collectively. And the heart of the children, collectively, that are turned towards the parents. It's a covenant community. And we're in this together. Let's now go through the New Testament, brethren, and see our responsibility. Let's go to 2 Timothy to get some context. Second Timothy 3 and verse 1. Here, here's the context, brethren. We're, we're in this church age. We, we have to build this covenant community, but here's the context. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. We're already in perilous times, and I'm telling you, brethren, I'm warning you now, it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse, and I think suddenly. I think we're going to wake up one day and it's going to be a very different world. It's going to be perilous. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. This will be the rule of the day. The idea of having a child that will actually listen to you. You say, oh, oh Ryan, could you get me a glass of water? Sure, Dad. That will be a fascination, that a child will actually listen to the parents. It's, it's an era now where there's an attitude. There's an attitude in society where children have no regard for the parents. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. So even parents won't have natural affection for their children. And, and we've seen it already where children, uh, parents are, are destroying their children, drowning their children, shooting their children. That that natural affection that should be automatic, it's not there. Truce breakers. The, the, The idea of having a covenant or having an agreement that you give me your word. You know, our young people, if any of our young people give me their word that they'll do such and such next week, I don't think twice about it. They're true to their word. We're in a society now where People's word means nothing. As they're saying the words to you, in the back of their mind, they know they're lying to you. that's, That's where we are. False accusers, incontinent, fierce. People are coming into power that are fierce, and they hate Christians. 
That's, that's the context. Despisers of Christians. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So this is the context. Now let's go through our, our responsibilities. Titus, Titus 2. Titus 2, verse 1, you, Timothy, you are the modern Levite. You are a spiritual Levite. The covenant community needs to have a relationship with the Levites. They should seek the law at his mouth. So you, Timothy, as a Levite, speak the things which become sound doctrine. So so you make sure that you give my people the law. That the aged men, and notice it's communal. It's not, okay, as a pastor, talk to them individually and make sure that individually they have a relationship with me because I'm just interested in individuals. No. You as the pastor, remind them of their communal responsibilities because I'm looking for a body of people. The aged men, you have a responsibility. Verse 3, the aged women, you have a responsibility. Verse 4, to teach the young women. So again, it's, it's, it's uh, hearts of the parents to the hearts of the children. So, so the young women, it's not just the mother or the father that has to teach that young woman. It's the aged women in the congregation. You collectively take on the responsibility to teach the young women. To love their husbands and to love their children. The covenant is being honored to be discreet, chaste, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, you have a responsibility to be sober-minded. Servants have a responsibility in verse 9. Verse 10, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And then look at this in verse, chapter 3, verse 1. No, sorry, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. That God, our Savior Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from all iniquity. So he's coming like a refiner's fire. And when he does that, any impurity will be burned off. But he's redeemed us so that he can redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. He's after a community. And so you have all these responsibilities of different roles. If you're an aged man, if you're a young man, if you're an older woman, if you have these different roles in the community, fulfill them. Because he's coming for a peculiar community. He wants a people. And that's what John the Baptist, that was his mission, Elijah, to prepare a people. And so we're in the church age of preparing a people. And that's what we have to fulfill here. Prepare a people, a peculiar people, zealous for good works. So so once we get the community thing right, then we can actually march and do things as a community. You know what? Um, Hosting the Feast of Tabernacles is a big job. Let's try to do that while we argue and fight with each other. And I I don't think it should go there. I think it should go there. We, We have fist fight. Can we do anything then? But, but what if we actually get along 
and we all have our roles and we recognize each other's gifts and, and the talents and abilities. And we say, yeah, you take that, you, you, you do that. And we just function like a body. Then we can be zealous as a community of good works. So I would read this passage and I would say, a people zealous for good works. And I think, well, I'm zealous for good works. So that's good. But in context, God isn't interested in an individual. He's interested in a peculiar people that are zealous for good works, that understand how to work together as a community. So we have to build the community and then be zealous as a community for good works. 1 Corinthians 7. Pastor Ramakan came here and did many good works. But one of the things that he did was introduce this notion or this, this, this notion of how we address each other. Started in Toronto and now I think it's pretty much across Canada. See, there are exceptions. But we will say Brother Jan, Sister Eva, Brother Ray. And so we refer to each other as brother and sister. And what that is saying is, we all have one father. We're a family. And so we're reminding each other that we are a family. And there's affection. So when I say brother Ray, I'm not just remembering that we have one father. And we should not be treacherous to each other. I'm also expressing affection. Brother Ray. There's an affection. There's a family affection there. I think this is wonderful. We tend not to call our children brother. So I wouldn't say brother Daniel, brother Ryan, because we'll say, well, he's not baptized. I think, though, that's a mistake. I think they're in the covenant community. And let's just read this here in 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 14, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. So as long as they're pleased to dwell, so so these Christians are brought into the truth, their spouses don't come along, so they're they're still coupled with uh, unbelievers. But if the unbelievers are pleased to dwell, then what the scripture is saying is they are sanctified and set apart by God. And in a sense, they're part of the covenant community by, by marriage because they're married. Else, verse 14, were your children unclean, but now are they holy? So the scripture says the children are holy, and they are part of the covenant community. Why? Because of the parents. The same way the parent, the, 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 parent, the, the spouse, say the husband, because of him, the unbelieving wife is sanctified. Or because of her, the unbelieving husband is sanctified. And and God sees them as an extension and includes them in the sanctified community. And he's saying in the same way, the children, even though they're not yet baptized, they are holy. They are part of the community. Let's now go, brethren, to Ephesians 5. where we see this again, this emphasis in the church age of preparing a people. 
preparing a people. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. How, how can we do that? How do we do that? How do we submit ourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord? You know, how is it that Murray and I, as co-pastors, never argue? And we don't agree. There are many things we disagree on. And, and Deacon Jan, as, as, when we're having our meetings, we don't agree. How is it that we've never had harsh words? H- how can we submit one to another? And how do we as a community, how come, how come you don't hear these uh, uh, battles and schisms in, 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 in the community? I think early on we had this teaching over and over again about gifts and how God distributes gifts in the body. And that's how we submit to one another. That's how it's so easy to pull off the feast and say, yeah, okay, Brother Ray will look after that, Deacon Jan, Sister Eva, because we recognize that no one person has all the gifts. And so we submit to one another as we see the Holy Spirit working in the other. And we see Christ in the other. Where two or three are gathered in my there I am in the midst of them. So we're looking for Christ and we esteem the other better than ourselves because we understand that there's no, there's no such thing as one person having everything. But the community, collectively, can have all the gifts. And so we, we're learning to be a community and submitting to one another. And now we deal with the family relationship, which is the basis of the community. The relationship wives should have with their husbands. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. And so husbands need to love their wives. And we see here, going down, how we ought to treat our wives. And then verse 32. This is a great mystery. There's this emphasis on getting our marriages right, getting the marriage covenant right. It's a mystery. People think marriage doesn't matter anymore because it's a mystery. But we understand. We understand. It's it's, it's mysterious to them. We understand. This has everything to do with the covenant that we are about to enter into with Christ. So if we who are married are unfaithful to this covenant, if we're faithful in a little, if we're unfaithful in a little, why would God trust us with the covenant to Christ? So so we're going to marry Christ, but we're unfaithful in the current marriage. Does this make sense to you? What if, as a people, we learn to honor marriage? We learn to give our, we say, I do. And I do means, I do until I die. Because when I give my word, I'm faithful to my word. What if we build a community like that? That then, out of that, when I give you my word, just as I said to the uh, earlier, the young people, If any of them say to me, I'll do such and such next Sabbath, their word is good. They're reliable. That's the kind of community we need to build. Brother George said it to me. I'm taking that to the bank. Because that's the kind of trust that we have. There's there's not this treachery that we saw in ancient Israel. Their words meant nothing. Here we're building a community where we value our word. And because we value our word, God can value our word. And when we marry Christ and we say, I do, God will trust us. Chapter 6. 
Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So again, this is the covenant community, and we're looking for children to have your hearts turn to your parents, turn to the fathers, and the fathers' hearts turned to the children. So you can just check this afterwards, brethren. 1 Peter 3 talks about, again, the relationship between husbands and wives and talks about the hidden man of the heart. It's all about the heart. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. The question is, who shall stand when the Lord comes suddenly to his temple? Because he's like a refiner's fire. He, he's going to take the gold or the silver and he's going to put it in the furnace. And anything that's impure is going to be burned up. So the question is, who will stand? 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath. So as the covenant community, in God's mercy, in this hidden interval, we are building a community that has not been appointed to wrath. We're here because of God's mercy, and we've not been appointed to wrath. But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together, together with him. Therefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as you also do. So as a community, operate as a community. And as a community, look after each other. Because I'm not looking for individuals. I'm looking for a collective body that knows how to function as a body. Each one recognizing that they're just one member of a body. And by themselves, there's nothing. I don't see any noses walking down the street. I don't see any ears walking down the street. These things have no value unless they're part of a body. And we have no value unless we're part of the body. So edify one another. Use your gifts. Use your abilities. Whatever the Spirit has given you, bring it to the body and edify the body. Verse 12. And we're begging you, brethren, to know the Levites which labor among you. So remember the covenant community broke down because they didn't have the right relationship with the Levites. And the Levites then had to go into the field and look after their own food and weren't paying attention to the word of God, and the people couldn't go to them for the word of God. And so without the, Le the, the Levitical covenant, the Mosaic covenant broke down. So we're begging you to know the Levites which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So the covenant community needs to have this relationship with the Levites and to esteem them very highly in love, for their work's sake. So there's a function that we have in the body. It's just a function. It's not that anybody's better than anybody else. It's that one's a nose, another is an eye, there's an ear, there's a toe, there's an appendix, there's a gallbladder, uh, there's a pancreas. You know, I'll tell you something. The pancreas is very important. You might not see it, but you need your pancreas to function. Pray for mine. <laughs> 
So know the Levites. Why? Because of their work's sake. There's a function that they have in the body. Now, after verse 13, it says they're over you in the Lord in verse 12. In verse 13, it says to esteem them very highly in love because of their function. And then it says, be at peace among yourselves. So operate as a community. And then verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. In context, what this is saying, brethren, is in the community, there are going to be some that don't accept the Levites. They don't accept that the Levites are over them in the Lord. They're going to resist that. So it's saying, I'm begging you, know the Levites, esteem them for their work's sake, and then warn those who are unruly, who will not accept Levitical oversight. You, brethren, need to have a word. It's not that we, as, as, the, as the priests or the ministers, have to do all the exhorting. No, you call that brother aside and edify him and warn him and remind him that we are a community and we all have different functions. And that's how we prepare a people for God. Let's conclude, brethren, in Malachi 4. And as we do that, I want to give us, for this coming year, five areas that we need to focus on as we focus on building our community. And I'm going to make it easy. I'm going to use the acronym BAMI. BAMI. So the question is, who shall stand when Christ returns? Because it's like a hot furnace but we want balmy weather. So when Christ comes, we want to enjoy balmy weather. So let's go to Malachi, chapter 3, where it says, verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me. So I'm coming, but he's going to come first. And when he comes, then the Lord whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. So by the mercy of God, that suddenly is still ahead of us because of this hidden interval between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We're in the church age. So we're in the age of the preparation of God's people that John the Baptist began. Even the messenger of the covenant, again, the emphasis is on the covenant, whom you delight in, Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts, but who, this is the question, when he comes, when he returns, who may abide the day of his coming? And you just have to read the book of Revelation to get a sense of what this day is going to be like. Who's going to stand? Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So here are five areas, brethren, that we can focus on to make sure that we can stand as a community when he appears. BAMI. B stands for business. B stands for business. We must be about our Father's business. Christ, Christ said, my Father works and I work. And how, didn't you, how, how come you didn't know that I must be about my Father's business? So we must keep that top of mind. God has a business. This is, you were saying today to, to the gentleman, you know, if you were running a business... You know, you have a family. It's a family business. God has a family business. That business has two, two emphases. 
One is evangelism. And, and you know, we're, we're a young congregation. We're, we're trying with evangelism. We've done these monthly public Bible studies. We haven't done a great job of publicizing them, but they've been very good for us. And, and the second part of the business is evangelism and there's edification. And I think even though we said public Bible studies, they've really been for our edification. And I think one of the things that has come out of these, it even came out today, is Greek philosophy. Just how much Greek philosophy has distorted Christianity. It, it has warped it completely out of shape. And I think in this series, You've Been Lied To, what's come out for us is the fundamental lie comes from the Greek philosophers. And they've invaded Christianity. So, so that's been this year. Next year, we're having another series called We Have Answers. And instead of speaking to the Christian community, we want to speak to the world at large and say, we have answers. That study this morning or this afternoon, I've never heard a study like this before. We, we actually have men that know the Bible and that can teach it very clearly. And I've been studying these atheists and how intelligent they are. And these Christians and Muslims and people of faith cannot stand up to them. They are so powerfully intellectual. They're powerful intellectuals. And they just make mince meat of Christians. They know the Bible better than Christians. Well, you know what? We can stand up to them. Take the smartest people and we can stand up to them. Why? Because we have the word of God. And we actually understand it. And I think it's good for our children to see that we can stand up to the most powerful intellect and answer their questions. So we have answers. And we want to put out some of these questions and appeal to people, not just Christians, but anybody who questions, any thinking person. And we want to pose some of these questions that the atheists are asking that Christians can't answer. So I think we want to look at that for, for the coming year. We have answers. But we're going to finish off the You've Been Lied To campaign. But we must focus on evangelism and edification. So now that we're working as a community, let's be about our Father's business. The A stands for assembly. So we must be about our Father's business but we must assemble. Do not forsake the assembly. We, we need to be building these loving relationships between each other and build an assembly where we, we love coming together and the children love being a part of the assembly. Let's focus on the assembly. L stands for Levites. We have a problem. We have a problem with the ministry. And it's a, it's, it's a problem that's been decades in the making. And I think we have an opportunity to turn it around. A minister is nothing more than a member with a special function. That's all. And if you know that you have a special function, each one of us here has a special function, ministry is just another function. It's the community we're building then we can show honor and respect to the ministry. And the ministry can show honor and respect to each other and not be competitive because we understand it's not any one person. It's the community. But we need the Levites. And the ancient Israel broke down because the Levitical priesthood broke down. So we need the Levites. M stands for marriage. We have to make a real effort to strengthen them. No matter, and we have some solid marriages here. No matter how solid your marriage is, it can be better. 
it can be better. And, and, and it's easy, especially if you've been married for years, it's easy to take your spouse for granted. We need to prioritize our spouses. We need to proactively show them that they are special. We need to build those solid marriages. And Y stands for youth. We need our youth to know how special you are, and we need you to have loving relationships with us, not just your parents, but with all the adults in the covenant community. So the adults in the covenant community, you should be building relationships with the youth. Don't don't come into the community or into the assembly and think, oh, that's somebody else's children. I don't need to deal with them. And parents, don't be overly protective. It should be okay. If Brother Gord wants to speak to to Rachel, that should be okay with me. In in fact, I I should rejoice that he's taking an interest. And Rachel should show him all the respect that she would show to me. Because we need a community where the hearts of the parents and the adult, the fathers, are turned to the children. And the hearts of the children are turned to the fathers. And I'm telling you, people, if, if I had a dollar for every time somebody came to me at the feast and said, your children, like, these children are special. These children are amazing. We've never seen children like this. That's part of being a model community. That people need to understand it. But it's, not, it's hard work. Satan is in us. We want to take our children for granted. We want to impose our authority on them. And Satan is working on them, where they have attitude toward us. So we have to work against this and build a a community that can stand as a community when Christ returns. So let's be about our Father's business. Let's focus on the assembly. Let's honor the Levites. Let's proactively build our marriage. And let's focus on the youth. I think those are five areas that we need to, to focus on as we build the community. And we'll conclude here in Malachi 3, verse 16, where the question was asked, who shall stand before the presence of the Lord when he comes? And here we see the answer. Verse 16, then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another. And Pastor Murray has gone over and over again with us the one another scriptures in the, in the New Testament. How the community should treat one another. And God is saying here, I'm going to take note of the community that understands how to, how to be together, how to treat one another. So here it says in Malachi 3, those that feared the Lord, so this is the underlying motivation. We know the Lord, we fear him, we speak often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, and notice, notice it here, as a man spares his own son that serves him. So throughout this passage, brethren, what we've heard over and over and over again is there's something special between the relationship of a father and a son. It's a mystery. But we know that it's speaking concerning God and his plan for mankind. So brethren, let's, let's take this warning, this dire warning. The Old Testament ends with a 
very dire warning that God is going to completely destroy the earth unless he finds a people, a community, where their heart is turned to him as a father and to the physical family. The fathers and the, the parents in the physical family, their heart is turned to the children. The children's heart is turned to them because we understand finally somebody gets it. I am God. I'm, I'm not saying I'm God. Sorry. God is saying, I am God. You heard the confusion this morning. They don't understand God is a family. I'm God. I'm a family. I sent my son to become just like you so that you can become just like him. It's a great mystery, brethren, but we've got to get the family right. So, so let's, as a community, understand our physical families have to get right and the spiritual family has to be right. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.